Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Socrates famously advised a new generation of Greeks to know thyself. In the modern business world, that translates to being self-aware or knowing your strengths and weaknesses. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and in this episode, Gary Vaynerchuk, CEO and co-founder of VaynerMedia, partner at Vayner RSC, and New York Times best-selling author, pulls no punches when reflecting on how self-awareness helped position him for professional and personal growth. Join us as we look at entrepreneurship through both an unorthodox and cutting-edge lens. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This is exciting, Gary. Yes, I'm excited. Gary V, if, in case you don't know, which I doubt is the case, he's a master of branding. He did not come to this by accident, though. He leveraged his EQ. He worked his butt off to become a serial entrepreneur, a VC with, what, $25 million investment fund? Mm -hmm. Is that which right? I've already deployed. Which he's already deployed, a best-selling author, and of course, a social media star as well. So, Gary, yes. very straightforward. Let's start with uncovering your strengths. Um, lots of people want to be Gary Vee, but they can't. So let's talk about self-awareness and when you figured out that you are an exceptional communicator. Um, you know, not until later. You know, I, I think, you know, it's funny. Lots of people want to be Gary Vee. I think lots of people want to really figure themselves out and put them in a position to be happy and successful. So when I hear that, I mean, I, th I don't think a lot of people want to be me. I think I put myself really out there and a lot of baggage comes along with that. And so I think personalities are different. What, you know, but it's interesting to think about your circumstances. I, uh, I mean, I was 31 years old running a retail e-commerce wine business in New Jersey. Like I didn't, I'd never been to Silicon Valley. Like this is, a lot has happened very quickly on the back of me understanding where consumer attention is. And probably about a year into Wine Library TV, in 2006 I started a wine video blog show around wine on YouTube in YouTube's really early days. And about six months in, I'm like, wow, a lot of people are watching this. And it was because I was talking about wine in a very different way. And I genuinely believe a lot of entrepreneurs and people listen to me because I think I'm undereducated in some ways. You know, I don't know the way a lot of things are said or done because I was very much a street immigrant kind of kid more. I wasn't a good student and there was, I just kind of look at things a lot of times for the first time, right? And I think some way, somehow, and because my, my, my mom's dad basically only spoke in analogies um, from what, I, <laughs> what my mom talks about him and I do that quite a bit. I, I feel like, uh, you know, my dad doesn't talk. He's what do you mean he doesn't talk? So my dad and I drove 45 minutes to Wine Library and back when I was a teen, shoppers discount liquors back in the day. I lived 45 minutes, I lived in Hunterdon County, New Jersey for my high school years and my dad's wine store was in Short Hills, Melbourne. So it was 45 minutes on Route 78 in Jersey and we would drive all the way there and all the way back and I talked every minute and my dad didn't say a word. <laughs> so my dad's an old school Russian guy, you know, in Russia, communist Russia, you didn't talk because if you said something that somebody found out, you went to jail. I mean like, Let's get to the punchline. There's a lot of reasons my dad doesn't talk. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, trying to, you know, being in a setting like that mm -hmm. where like you're building something in a business environment together but, I, but somebody's not communicating back to you, 
definitely honed, I think, intuitive skills I already had, improv skills I already had. They probably made them hyper. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, you know, at this point I really understand it. But I'm really bad at like cheering things or observing them. Like I do them in real time. There was never a point where I sat down and thoughtfully was like, wow, I have this or this is important. I'm aware of it. Mm-hmm. I try not to get too high or too low about any of these things, but it's definitely a disproportionate impact on my career. But not only as like the public persona, on the one-to-one relationships I have with my employees and my family members, you know, being a good communicator is a pretty fruitful uh, you know, skill set. And as Dan was saying, you learn by doing and you've formed multiple businesses. This uh, communication skill has allowed you to do this from Wine Library to Vayner Sports to the host of multiple digital programs. Which of these different businesses do you do for love versus for money? I speak for love. I do this for love. Like this is the place I love the most. Like being in, you know, public speaking is now an ROI negative event for me with the things that are going on in my life, even though it is still crazy to me what I get paid to do a speech. You know, especially when you come from zero, it's crazy, you know. Getting paid to give a speech one day this year, making more money than I made when I was 30 years old is a pretty intense kind of thing that you'd wrap your head around. But I do, but it's still not worth my time in a lot of ways now, unless it's leading to business generation for VaynerMedia or other things, which is really what I now mainly do. But I'll do something like in New York or support organizations I believe in. But I do this for love. I love the thought that I'm so, like so knowing all of. So I love reverse engineering the audience. So I'm in a very funny zone right now uh, in this talk. In this talk, it's less about entertainment, like 18,000 people at an offsite for a company. Tonight's about okay, I really want to be sharp and talk about three or four things that I think even a really strong crowd like this isn't thinking enough about because I'm always trying to leave with giving more value than the person expected, right? So this I do for love. Uh, the Gary V thing, the public persona I think I do for love um, the most. Okay, Vayner Sports. Vayner Sports is, is a, a business that is very interesting because my brother has Crohn's disease and so he left Vayner Media two years ago because the stress of going from 30 to 800 people was pretty intense and he just didn't like it anymore and if anybody here is in client service, you're just managing people and if you don't like managing people, it sucks shit, right? (laughs) And so he got to that place and he needed to bounce and he needed time for himself and very quickly he came back and said, what about that sports agency we bought? I bought a sports agency, a very small one, just to learn, you know, I have very substantial ambitions to buy the New York Jets so I figured if I owned (laughs) If I own a sports agency, I'll learn. I'll learn from the inside. I was gonna lose money every year owning a boutique sports agency that I wasn't gonna be really involved with to learn. Uh, but then he wanted to do that and once he decided he wanted to really be involved, I felt comfortable in rebranding it to Vayner Sports, mm-hmm. putting our name on it. It was gonna be real. Uh, I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to 50 of the top 100 football players that are gonna come into the NFL next year on DM right now. It's fun, I like it, it's interesting. It's an awful business, makes no sense. Stupidest business going. Like, like just a terrible business model, sports agencies. You have to hit unbelievable scale for it even to become somewhat interesting. Uh, my brother's doing it for love. I'm doing it for the love of my brother. Now your philosophy as you pursue all these different avenues is that nine to five, working nine to five is for losers. Do you want to be productive? <laughs> Not true. <laughs> you, well, it's for, it's for someone who isn't going to get where they want to do, get. No, the, the, and I appreciate you bringing it up. 
I, and listen, the Times razzed me the other day on this in a pretty substantial way. I when, I, when I talk about things, context is lost. Sometimes I'm at fault, sometimes people that report on this are at fault. To make it very clear, here's my thing. I'm fascinated by people that complain. If you don't complain, I actually have nothing to say to you. I don't, I don't think I'm entitled to. I don't, you clearly have no reason to really listen. If you're good, you're good. And if that's nine to five and you're on four softball teams and you're loving life, then you won. My big thing is in this era of everybody saying that they're gonna be billionaires and they're entrepreneurs and they're the best and I'm the next fucking Zucks, right? And you're going to Coachella and you're going to you know, every summit at sea and you're just not working, like I think that's intriguing. I think, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't think people are losers. I don't think people shouldn't sleep. I think your actions should match your mouth and your, and your ambitions. That's what I'm interested in. And I think that we have a very broken system right now of, of entrepreneurial tendencies because there's a lot of money in the system and it's a very intriguing time. So I think, I think working nine to five is for a loser that says that they're gonna rule the world and they watch Netflix for four hours a day. But if you wanna start your own business, if you wanna be the next Gary Vee, it takes more than working nine to five. You gotta put in the time. You've got to hustle. I think so. I think it's super hard to build a substantial, sustainable, you know, safe business working nine to five. If, I mean, look, let me say it again. You can work nine to five. You really can. I, you know, I just think that hard work is an unbelievably controllable variable compared to the serendipity of the marketplace, the God-given talent you have. It's, it's a very important variable that I think is, uh, is a differentiator if you want to be successful and I, I see a lot of people resting on their laurels after they hit some success and they're past and what I'm worried about is technology has created infrastructure that has not allowed us to rest on our advantages, not even the biggest companies in the world. Mm-hmm. The biggest retailers in the world, the biggest media companies in the world are on call. You and your little cockamanian business are good? Get out of here. And so like, you know, that's it. It's a differentiator, but what happens for people who don't have the time, the resources? I mean, I'm a working mom. How on earth am I supposed to do my day job, talk to you, get home, deal with my kids, make sure that they have enough to eat for the next day, prepare their lunch, and then use my remaining hours to come up with something that I'm passionate about? Well, do you want to build a business? It's not. I'm, I'm saying for whatever I pursue, and yes, if, if that means going down that road later on. So I just think life's about options. Right, like everybody's got stuff. Like to me, the fact that you even have the ability to build a business between 9.30 p.m. and one o'clock in the morning is remarkable because your grandmother didn't. The internet has allowed that to actually be even a debate. You know, our grandparents grew up in an environment where that became, you know, you weren't opening a business at 9.30 p.m., right? Like the fact that we even have the ability even to debate that Mm. is fascinating to me. And I'm not naive that there's extreme circumstances for many people and that people are starting further along than others. My point on that has always been, it's just remarkable that you can do so much between 7 p.m. and 2 in the morning to change the outcome of your life, the end. And and that's it. I mean, it's not super, it's not super difficult to understand. It's the options that we are now awarded by the infrastructure of scalable technologies that have no cost of entry to build a personal brand or a small business direct to consumer is just fascinating to me. 
You shouldn't. It's not, other people have better advantages than you. You're also more than welcome to take a different job, make less money, Mm -hmm. take a step back, live a little less fancy for four years and build your business. The thing that we never talk about is the step back. A lot of people say to me and they come at me and they're like, yeah, but I've got this and this and I'm like, cool, but if you're so upset and you want to build this business, why not go from making 180 a year to 97? You've opened up a lot of time. Why don't you sell your home and go rent an apartment? Why don't you go fucking not buy four different outfits every month (laughs) and buy one a year? You can. Life's about options. There's a lot of ways to do this. When was the last time you stepped back? Um, VaynerMedia's a step back. How? How? Seven years ago, I'd just come on the back of investing in Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr. I was one of the 100 most followed people on Twitter. Uh, I had all sorts of opportunities. I could have raised hundreds of millions of dollars for a fund on the back of being an early angel investor that was fancy. I was rolling. I had a lot of things going for me. And I decided to take a step back and start VaynerMedia because I thought it would be an amazing infrastructure for me to build on top of in my 50s and 60s. So, I mean, I make a lot less money and eat a lot more shit by running VaynerMedia than the options that were in front of me seven, eight years ago. You took the boring approach. I took an extremely boring approach that a lot of my friends that are fancy still make fun of. Definitely made fun of at the time. Now a lot of them have gone out of business, so they make less fun. And, and, and you know what, to be very frank, the Gary Vee thing started getting big and I was, didn't like that I was a motivational speaker. I had so much pride that as a 22-year-old kid, I took my dad's business with no money and grew it substantially in a very significant way. And I thought of myself as a businessman, not as this personality or this new age motivational speaker. So I think I even needed it for myself to build another business to just scratch that itch that I wasn't a charlatan or a personality that I that I had chops who just happened to be a little narcissistic and over the top. <laughs> for those who have figured out they're passionate, they want to start a business, they're ready to take the leap. The question for a lot of them is how do they tell that story in a captivating way? How do they convince others that they're there and they're the real thing? Um, for the purpose of raising capital, for the purpose of getting awareness? Both. Well, first you have to figure out if you're capable. Are you good enough at writing? audio or video to communicate your story. You have to find your medium first. There's a lot of people that can captivate. Fred Wilson has built a lot of brand equity and a lot of deal flow through writing. Through writing, I, I created it through video, right? Uh, Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss continue to build it on audio, right? So there's three ways to communicate. When you start getting into cartooning and art, you can go a little bit further, <laughs> but there's three core ways. There's written, audio, and video. First and foremost, you can't be romantic about which one. A lot of people want to be good at video or this and that. You know, so A, you have to figure out if you can actually tell a story and then two, you have to figure out the medium in which you can tell a story and if you can do it in, in more than one places, that would be preferable because our attention is fragmented at scale. Um, so that's the strategy behind it. So how do you decide which is the best medium because there's different things that come into fashion, go out of fashion. I mean, if you pause too long, you'll miss it. My answer is to do them all. Hit it all. If you can. You know, look, I think, I don't think people have really audited how much downtime they have if they want it. I mean, this is all comes down to ambition. Reverse engineering the actual ambition. You know, it's fine if you want to pander in front of friends or relatives or other people. You need to really have a real conversation with yourself and you also need to realize it's going to change. 
When you're 22 and you're single and you're on fire and your older brother's killing it, you want to fucking prove it to your parents and yourself and this and that. You get married, you fall in love, you have a kid, you have a sick kid, priorities change. Life is life, a lot happens. So not only do you have to talk to yourself and figure out what your ambition is, you have to actually audit that on a daily basis, at least on a monthly basis, and it keeps changing. It keeps changing. I mean, I took more days off this August Mm -hmm. than I did in my entire 20s combined. Why? Because I have an eight and five year old and that's what's more important to me at this moment. And in my 20s, I was so on fire, I didn't want to go to the Jersey Shore and hook up. I wanted to build something. You know, and like things change. Now I kind of want to go to the Jersey Shore. (laughs) You know, but but, you know, like I think, you know, I think things change and I think that uh, you need to be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. I'm just fascinated on words, pandering, and actions. I'm fascinated, I spend a lot of time on this. Because it helps people when you suffocate them and tell them they're full of shit or they're right. Like it's an important conversation. When you're tricking yourself, you've got a real problem. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned how things change, and there are different mediums. You could try to do all three at the same time. You're probably not going to be good at all three. You'll be better on one thing than another. Yes. The response that you get, though, I mean, it all comes down to understanding human behavior because that part doesn't change. How people respond to a message. That's right. And I genuinely believe the reason that I've popped over the last decade is I'm completely obsessed with giving more to my audience than I ask for in return. Period, end of story forever. It's just the truth. I really, you know, I see a lot of faces here. I feel a lot of vibes from you. Like, I'm not asking for anything. I'm putting out the best stuff I've got for free every day. There's no, it's not a top of funnel to get you into my $400 ebook. It's not a top of funnel to get you to come and visit my island for $25,000 for the weekend. It's fucking purely, can I guilt you because I gave you so much that I asked for nothing in return that it creates word of mouth. Can I be historically correct? Can I just bring so much value? It's ultimate brand arbitrage. Does it work? 100%. Because so few people do it because they're not good enough to do it. Give us an example of when it worked. It, it's my, for who, for me? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's my, I, it worked because I made a video that said Twitter's dangerous to Facebook it was a good, thoughtful piece of content that led to Zucks asking me through Dave Morin to fly out to Facebook and talk to their company when they were this size. I talked about human behavior in 2007 the whole time. I didn't know anything about Mark and realized how much of an EQ guy he really was too. I didn't know he was in the room like this. He walked down from somewhere over there when I was done. He asked me if I could have dinner with him. We had dinner that night and four months later I bought a bunch of his parents' stock and made tens of millions of dollars. Okay, that's a pretty good story. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one, you know, right? Same with Tumblr. David Karp saw a piece of content about how I thought about engagement. It led to a couple of drinks in the city and he came out to Wine Library and the B round of Tumblr was $14 million valuation and I invested very aggressively and made lots and lots of money. I, I made a piece of content about brands and Facebook that Mike Lazaro saw. I gave him a quote for Buddy Media's landing page when they launched and I made seven figures in advisory equity for a quote on his website on the back of a piece of content. You still own stakes in those companies? No, I've exited it all, right? Tumblr sold to Yahoo, made money. Facebook? Facebook, I own every single share still. I'm gonna end up making more money on Facebook than some of the early top 100 employees because I knew what Facebook was when it went public. You understood the mission. I think Zucks is an all-time entrepreneur. He day trades attention like I do except he's way further along and he can buy the companies that are the infrastructure of it. He, bought, he stole Instagram, right? I got made fun of for saying that the day that happened. 
He tried to buy Snapchat long before anybody gave a fuck. He, he invests in VR. He moved a desktop company to full mobile when it was painful and cost prohibitive. He understands consumer behavior. He is an extremely all-time EQ operator that people think is an introverted nerd. But he's also gotten a lot of negative attention at Facebook as well. It's the company's mired in the government's Russia investigation. Yes. There's a lot of anger towards yes. big tech companies, yes. towards founders like Mark Zuckerberg who don't go through college and now head up this big company. They're billionaires. Um, the left, the far left, the far right have kind of teamed up together yes. in their anger towards big tech. Yes. What's the road ahead for Facebook? How does it navigate that? How do you, how do you see the company surviving this? Easily. Or thriving? Easily. You know, I don't know the details. Uh, you know, if they've done something horribly wrong, they should pay the price. But how do I see them surviving it pretty darn easily? What about all the public backlash? Um, yeah, easily. I, like, <laughs> like, everybody's using Instagram more. Like, people, people like to say shit. They don't act on it. Everybody here loves to throw up some sort of tweet and think they're doing a social justice move. Why don't you fucking do something about it? People Our, talk. I mean it, it's super important. Like all my, uh, the day Uber was the worst and everybody was unsubscribing and it's terrible and like I watched four to five, six people that I knew in my office and friends like unsubscribed, I hate it and then literally, because I'm curious, kind of like tagged it and then just watched them take an Uber a week later. <laughs> we are so full of shit, it's scary and all that big technology is doing is exposing us not changing us, and we're gonna have to go through a painful hundred years of understanding how full of shit we really are. Do you think government regulators will clamp down on the likes of Facebook, on Google, in a way that will change how we interact with those platforms? I think it's possible. You know, I never underestimate politicians because I don't respect them a whole lot. Do they understand the platforms? Uh, They may, or they may not, but they will only behave in their best interest. Mm. So I'm not sure. You mentioned Uber. Yeah. I want to bring that up because of some of the mistakes you made. <laughs> you passed up investing in Uber how many times? Twice in the angel round. Four million dollar valuation. <laughs> Maybe that's not so bad now given that they're kind of challenged. Yeah, I mean they're challenged but it would have been a solid bet. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an interesting time at Uber. You know, Travis is one of my dear, dear friends. One of the first friends I made in tech. Uh, and it's been really intense to watch what he's going through. And the thing with me is, you know, this is a tough interview for me because the truth is, I don't even have the first detail yet about Facebook in Russia. I swear to God, I know it's in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I haven't even. Be- I really don't like headline reading. I really don't like it. Like, I as I become educated, as I'm super educated, I'm I'm really in a good place in three places the current state of like tech, like consumer tech, right? Like I really understand Snapchat and Instagram and Musical.ly, like I'm a practitioner, I really understand it. There's a lot of people here who have opinions on it and never done a Snapchat ad or things. Like I really understand it. I really understand wine. I really understand it and I really understand the New York Jets, right? (laughs) And when I hear people talk about those three things, even smart people, I'm fascinated by when you're really great at your craft, how much smarter you are than somebody that's even good, right? I've gotten really quiet about most things because I realize I might be somewhat of a headline reader, kind of a headline reader. Like I've, I've lost all oomph in the last five years to talk about most issues because I'm like, wait a minute. If I sound this stupid 
Like the way my friends that are super smart about Facebook ads and Instagram influencers and Snapchat, if I sound like this around healthcare or this or that, I must, like, so, you know, it's interesting. The Uber thing's really interesting for me. I have a lot of emotions because I really adore him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand there's a lot of things that in the press that have been tough. There's a lot of stuff that's tough for me to, like, to like, uh, you know, I'm hopeful, right? When mm-hmm. you care about somebody, uh, obviously he's not there anymore, which is tough. Uh, it will be interesting to watch. The London thing, super fascinating. I don't know the details. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of politics behind it. It'll be interesting. It's an interesting company. You said you really understand Snapchat. Yes. But the problem with Snap is that whatever innovation it comes up with, Facebook can replicate it and do it bigger and splashier. Yes. How did they go up against a behemoth like Facebook? They have to innovate in a way that is not a feature. A feature is not the way you innovate, right? Mm -hmm. The cat's out of the bag. Fast following features are now going to be a way that is not going to allow the house parties or the Marco Polos or the next frontier things to get there. So they're gonna have to give it some thought. What's ironic about that is Snap is uniquely, potentially a company that could do that because Evan, and I don't know him at all, I've never met Evan, and I know a lot of Imran's and a lot of the other characters, but he's, he's an LA kid. He, he's treated Snapchat like a fashion brand as much as a tech company. He actually could go left field. Like, like, you know, if I said to you that it was Snap, not Adidas, that did what they've done for the last two years to put Nike in a weird spot, it wouldn't seem that far-fetched. I get where you could be like, hmm, but it's not as far-fetched that if I said Twitter or, you know, or Facebook or Uber did that, right? And so that's where I'm fascinated what Snap is gonna do or not gonna do. We're about to find out if Evan was a one-trick pony mm-hmm. or if he could adjust to the reality of the new marketplace. They've quietly invested very aggressively in AR, you know, when you look at their M&A. So it'll be interesting to see if they can or will do anything there. And then the other question is this, right? Which is, Snap is an incredibly big platform that has, can build a very big business. It's just that the market put all of the value into that it was gonna continue to grow and be 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds. So what's fascinating with Snap is gonna be that it's probably overvalued in a Wall Street dynamic, even, even amongst everything being overvalued, um, they're gonna have to do something. They're gonna have to truly innovate and it will be interesting to see if they can do it. But again, you know, if Marissa buys Instagram for a billion instead of Tumblr, who knows what could have happened, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're always, that's what's amazing about business. You're always one good or one bad move away from changing the narrative. And I love that about this game. Like, I never get caught up in it's going well and I'm in this fancy building and all these amazing people are looking at me right now. Tomorrow it could be the beginning of the complete end. I love that. It doesn't matter what I've done for 20 years. How does, how does Twitter change the narrative? It's, the user growth has slowed down tremendously. It's kind of become a niche product. Um, it's, it's not panning out the way a lot of investors had hoped. It's now looking to expand uh, the character limit to 280 from 140. I don't know if this is gonna make a big difference. Yeah, that's not gonna be it, right? You know, <laughs> I think we can all agree with that. But I do think since Jack's, I mean look, and Dick is one of my favorite people on earth, but in that four years, the product didn't innovate once. The product just did not innovate. And so, um, at least since Jack's been back for the last 18 months or whatever it's been, there's been little subtle things. I mean literally, I mean for, and I know there are a lot of people in this room, like remember, like it was literally four or five years, literally the same exact product. Even like star to heart, or like retweet, like little subtle, subtle things. Um, 
I thought it was super interesting what Twitter was doing when they were buying up all the rights because I thought they were actually building a true Netflix competitor as an OTT player. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if they have the right talent in place to navigate it to be that, but I thought it was the right idea. I do think that Facebook and Snap and Twitter uh, are absolutely the potential OTT challengers of the future. Um, and I thought they were earlier to move on that than the others, but they needed to move smarter, better, faster, and I, and I feel like they didn't. They just ended up doing a six execution or a four instead of the 10 they needed to really get there. Do you think uh, we're in a bubble when it comes to these big tech companies and how much money we're throwing at them and, and what investors expect from them? I think Amazon and Facebook are grossly underpriced. Explain. I think Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, as long as they don't die, are gonna make them grossly underpriced. What's Amazon's next move? <laughs> Being sued by the government. <laughs> uh, Amazon is so incredible. I remember four or five years ago at a keynote, right, and I don't remember if Steve Jobs had passed away or was sick, or, but I remember saying that I thought Bezos was better than Steve Jobs, and I got really booed, and this was the height of Apple, and Amazon, was four or five years ago, which is not what we think about Amazon today. Yeah. But it was, but but AWS sawdust. You know, like like the way he bought, like even the losses, like Living Social and Woot, and he was just doing things. And I was like, fuck, man, Bezos has moves, right? Like 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 Steve Jobs is all time, but he had the same move, rinse and repeat, in a lot of ways. If you understand how I'm kind of framing it, Bezos was throwing all sorts of different. You know, it was kind of like the difference between like boxing and MMA. And I was like, Jeff, like. Like he could do any. I think he could do anything. Like I woke up and like Amazon buys Whole Foods. I'm like, yep. Like, like you know, like tomorrow if I wake up, like Amazon buys the N- the NHL. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like like I think everything is white space for th- him. I think he is absolutely the guy. I'm so impressed with their execution. I'm I'm so excited to watch them do more stuff. And I'm genuinely hopeful that they understand how to navigate so that the government doesn't stop them because they feel to me more than any company as the company that could because I think they could win the whole fucking thing. They have, the, they have the stack. When you start understanding what, when you start understanding that Alexa is this close to becoming the next search engine, when you understand that when you're brushing your teeth and you run out of it and you're like, Alexa, reorder it for me. Like when you start understanding what they're doing, the way they're putting their pieces together, when you understand when you're watching Thursday Night Football and Des Bryant scores a touchdown and at the height of your emotion, you can order his jersey by saying, Alexa, order that jersey or, like, or whatever they tell you to do while you're watching because they're full stack. They are an unbelievably crafty business. Um, he buys underpriced things, buying the Washington Post at the time, like that Washington Post and Boston Globe trade at the time of newspaper's biggest demise, the brand was so much more worth than this. To put it on the tablet, whether the fire worked or not, it was irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It was the right thesis. And, and here's the thing about great entrepreneurs. Whether Oculus is right or not, it's the right thesis. When you're a great entrepreneur and you're betting like that, you just have to be right once out of every eight times to make the whole thing work. Great entrepreneurs do not care about their losses because they're their losses, right? And average entrepreneurs and non-entrepreneurs always care about other people's opinions about their losses. Good to remember, good to keep in mind. All right, let's get to lightning round where we're, I just basically have a lot of random questions I want to get Gary's opinion on. Um, what's the most overrated new technology? Consumer VR. And let me explain why. For us right now as a practical function, I believe in consumer VR. I just don't think you're gonna see a lot of consumers 
really doing impactful VR stuff the way you want to over the next 36 to 48 months. You still don't know a single person that spends a good hour a day in VR hardcore, right? Do you know anyone in the tech community who does? Yeah, I'm sure there's some hardcore like people like, like it's funny, the first VR people I was meeting like 18 months ago, they were so nerdy, I'm like okay, this is good. Right? <laughs> These are real nerds again. This isn't the club promoters of fucked up tech. These are nerds, you know? <laughs> so that was cool, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't, like I really don't even know the story of some, like it's not there yet. So I think consumer VR is gonna lose a lot of money for a lot of people. It's a great B2B thing. It's great to go to the Super Bowl and like do a brand activation, but nobody's sitting at home for an hour on VR yet for real, and I don't think that's gonna happen for another three, four years. Like real, and it could like, and that to me feels like overrated. I, we all know it's coming. I think in 20 years it could be disproportionately, it could arbitrage the whole internet itself. I'm bullish, I'm just short term. I, I care about timing. Timing is what matters, and so, not a fan right now. Not a fan right now. Who is a young and upcoming entrepreneur that you're watching out for that could really be the nef- next Jeff Bezos? I mean, at that level, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know if I've seen it. Okay, could be the next Evan Spiegel. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't have an answer. Uh, I've also not been investing a whole lot lately because I think the market is grossly overpriced for, I don't think ideas should be worth $4 million. Um, I'm a big fan of Rachel Tippograph, the founder of Micmac. I think she's a fucking gangster. What, uh, what does the company do? She's pivoted it six times in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what does, what, what's the It was what's originally mobile for? video. It was QVC for mobile. Then it became a SaaS product for brands, mobile integration, swipe up shopability in stories and Snapchat. She, her tenacity is intoxicating. All right. Well, that's a name that we'll watch out for. Yeah, I think that, you know what's fun for me? I don't think that name populates for another seven to 12 years, but when I recall this clip on the internet in <laughs> seven to 12 years, it's gonna feel real good. Gary, Bitcoin or Ethereum? Ethereum. Why? Ethe- because it's more of a platform than the singular brand. It's blockchain, then it's Ethereum, then it's Bitcoin. So I don't think people understand, right? It's like, it's like, WordPress and Netscape Navigator or Yahoo.com, Bitcoin could win and could become a brand like a Nike and could be amazing and all that, but Ethereum is the infrastructure above which you build on top of. Blockchain, bless you, blockchain is the most gangster shit going on and I'll explain why. When you talk, if you truly understand the chess moves of decentralizing everything, well then the whole damn world's on call. Governments included. So, could be interesting. What's one brand that's doing everything it's supposed to and more, that's hitting it on all cylinders? I've never been able to answer this question, and let me tell you why. I don't pay attention to other brands. So at Vayner, when we have Budweiser as a client, this is now maybe my team, let me rephrase, I hope my team for Budweiser (laughs) is looking at Miller Lite and other things. I, I think a brand doing everything right means that all their behaviors are leading to a healthy business not more likes. When Burberry or Taco Bell are getting all the accolades in the press, I never know if it's real. I understand that they're moving quickly and doing good work on new stuff. I just don't know if it's actually driving business. There's a big disconnect between being innovative and making business decisions that are fruitful. And so uh, I'm not sure, but I would say the ones that are spending the least amount of money to make the most amount of money in return. (laughs) Money out versus money in. 
How would so. you advise, let's say, the NFL to reclaim its glory? It's under some pressure these days. Um, how would you how would you advise it to get its groove back? Uh, Could it do it through social media? No, no. It's way, 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 way bigger than that. It's uh, it's and it's not concussions or President Trump. It's so many variables. First of all. Fantasy football's dynamic has been really intriguing because you've, you've gotten people to care more about players than teams. You've got the Red Zone channel. It's such an incredible product. Like it's completely addictive. Like it's just a better experience if you love the sport of football. Uh, the man cave and the high quality technology has made it so much more interesting to be home than go to the game. Um, but even uh, when you're at home, people don't watch as much as they used to. Yeah, I mean, I think it hit a tipping point. I mean, like everybody, like, like Jesus Christ, it was like two years ago, like the NFL, like what the NFL has accomplished over the last couple years is iconic all time. Like it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's got so popular and now, you know, soccer really, you know, the US going to the Sweet 16 of two World Cups in a row is a very subtle thing that people underestimate, right? The, you know, the distribution rights of the English Premier League allowing kids to watch in the mornings and go with their dad at 7 a.m. to do things is grossly underestimated. Esports is fundamentally being disrespected for how big it actually is and all of this is chopping away at mm. the, the, the ratings. Uh, it is still the disproportionate most popular sport in our country. It's still doing incredibly fine. I think it is laughable to diss the NFL for their business issues and applaud NASCAR, which has become completely irrelevant. Like NASCAR- Which has seen its own ratings drop over the years, long before. NASCAR has fucking collapped. NASCAR is down half. NASCAR is over. NASCAR doesn't even exist. Like, so it's like, if we're talking like the impact of stuff, um, you know, that's a laughable argument the president's trying to make. NASCAR is finished. Esports is coming, and uh, and the NFL is you know where baseball was in 1984, you know, mm. or 1973. It's like in that apex moment, and you know there's only one way to go from that level. How much closer are you to your life goal of buying the Jets? Closer, <laughs> and closer because I think the way I play is very different than Zucks or other people, which is I don't do any behavior that creates quick massive wealth. I don't do the things that create quick, massive wealth. I don't start companies that could get to that level. I don't invest the level of capital that can get to that level. I'm running a marathon, a really long marathon. But I'm 41 years old, right? And so to me, if I buy the Jets in 23 years, I feel like I'm a young man. I feel like I hang out with a lot of 64-year-old men and women who feel super young to me and super on fire and have a lot more to do. And I think if I buy the Jets at 64, that gives me plenty of time to win seven Super Bowls in 30 years. <laughs> and then I can move on with myself. That's very ambitious. If you can't get the Jets, what's the next best thing? The Knicks. <laughs> All right, Gary Vaynerchuk, thank you so much thank for joining us. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.